Chapter Eleven of the Riddle of the Sands. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gesine. The Riddle of the Sands by Erskine Childers. Chapter Eleven. The Pathfinders. In the late afternoon of the second day. Our flotilla reached the Elbe at Brunsbüttel, and ranged up in the inner basin, while a big liner, whimpering like a fretful baby, was tenderly nursed into the lock. During the delay, Davies left me in charge, and bolted off with an oil-can and a milk-jug. An official in uniform was passing along the quay from vessel to vessel, countersigning papers. I went up to meet him with our receipt for dues, which he signed carelessly. Then he paused and muttered, Dolci Bella, scratching his head. That was the name. English? he asked. Yes. Little Lustcutter, that is so. There was an inquiry for you. Whom from? A friend of yours, from a big barge yacht. Oh, I know, she went on to Hamburg, I suppose. No such luck, Captain, she was outward bound. What did the man mean? He seemed so vastly amused by something. When was this? About three weeks ago? I asked indifferently. Three weeks? It was the day before yesterday. What a pity to miss him by so little. He chuckled and winked. Did he leave any message? I asked. It was a lady who inquired, whispered the fellow, sniggering. Oh, really? I said beginning to feel highly absurd, but keenly curious. And she inquired about the Dulcibella? Herr Gott, she was difficult to satisfy. Stood over me while I searched the books. A very little one, she kept saying, and are you sure all the names are here? I saw her into her kleine boot, and she rode away in the rain. No, she left no message. It was dirty weather for a young Fräulein to be out alone in. Ach, she was safe enough, though. To see her crossing the ebb in a chop of tide was a treat. And the yacht went on down the river? Where was she bound to? How do I know? Bremen, Wilhelmshaven, Emden? Somewhere in the North Sea. Too far for you. I don't know about that, said I bravely. Ach, you will not follow in that. Are you not bound to Hamburg? It seems a pity to have missed them. Think twice, Captain. There are plenty of pretty girls in Hamburg. But you English will do anything. Well, few Glück. He moved on, chuckling, to the next boat. Davis soon returned with his cans and an armful of dark rye loaves, just in time, for the liner being through, the flotilla was already beginning to jostle into the lock and Bartels was growing impatient. "'They'll last ten days,' he said, as we followed the throng, still clinging like a barnacle to the side of the Johannes. We spent the few minutes while the dock was emptied in a farewell talk to Bartels. Karl had hitched their main halyards onto the windlass and was grinding at it in an acharnement of industry, his shock head jerking and his grubby face perspiring. Then the lock gates opened, and so, in a babel of shouting, whining of blocks, and creaking of spars, 
our whole company was split out into the dingy bosom of the Elbe. The Johannes gathered way under wind and tide, and headed for midstream. A last shake of the hand, and Bartels reluctantly slipped the head-rope, and we drifted apart. Gute Reise! Gute Reise! It was no time for regretful gazing, for the flood-tide was sweeping us up and out, and it was not until we had set the foresail, edged into a shallow bite, and let go our anchor, that we had leisure to think of him again, but by that time his and the other craft were shades in the murky east. We swung close to a glacis of smooth blue mud, which sloped up to a weed-grown dyke. Behind lay the same flat country, colourless, humid, and opposite us, two miles away, scarcely visible in the deepening twilight, ran the outline of a similar shore. Between rolled the turgid Elbe, the sticks flowing through Tartarus, I thought to myself, recalling some of our Baltic anchorages. I told my news to Davis as soon as the anchor was down, instinctively leaving the sex of the inquirer to the last, as my informant had done. "'The Medusa called yesterday?' he interrupted. "'And outward bound. That's a rum thing. Why didn't he inquire when he was going up?' "'It was a lady.' and I dryly related the official's story, very busy with the deck-broom the while. "'We're all square now, aren't we?' I ended. "'I'll go below and light the stove.' Davis had been engaged in fixing up the riding-light. When I last saw him he was so engaged, but motionless, the lantern under his left arm, and his right hand grasping the forestay and the half-knotted lanyard, his eyes staring fixedly down the river, a strange look in his face, half exultant, half perplexed. When he joined me and spoke, he seemed to be concluding a difficult argument. "'Anyway, it proves,' he said, "'that the Medusa has gone back to Norderney. "'That's the main thing.' "'Probably,' I agreed. "'But let's sum up all we know. First, it's certain that nobody we've met as yet "'has any suspicion of us.' "'I told you he did it off his own bat,' threw in Davis. "'Or, secondly, of him. "'If he's what you think, it's not known here.' "'I can't help that. "'Thirdly, he inquires for you on his way back from Hamburg, three weeks after the event. "'It doesn't look as if he had meant to dispose of you. "'He sends his daughter, too, a curious proceeding under the circumstances.' "'Perhaps it's all a mistake.' "'It's not a mistake,' said Davis, half to himself. "'But did he send her? "'He'd have sent one of his men. "'He can't be on board at all.' "'This was a new light.' "'What do you mean?' I asked. "'He must have left the yacht when he got to Hamburg. "'Some other devil's work, I suppose. "'She's being sailed back now, and passing here. "'Oh, I see.' It's a private supplementary inquiry. That's a long name to call it. Will the girl sail back alone with the crew? She's used to the sea, and perhaps she isn't alone. There was that stepmother. But it doesn't make happens the difference to our plans. We'll start on the ebb tomorrow morning. We were busier than usual that night, reckoning stores, tidying lockers, and securing movables. 
"'We must economize," said Davis, "'for all the world as though we were castaways on a raft. "'It's a wretched thing to have to land somewhere to buy oil,' "'was a favorite observation of his. "'Before getting to sleep, "'I was made to recognize a new factor "'in the conditions of navigation "'now that the tideless Baltic was left behind us. "'A strong current was sluicing past our sides, "'and at the eleventh hour I was turned out, "'clad in pyjamas and oilskins, a horrible combination, to assist in running out a kedge or spare anchor. "'What's kedging off?' I asked, when we were tucked up again. "'Oh, it's when you run aground. You have to—but you'll soon learn all about it.' I steeled my heart for the morrow. So behold us, then, at eight o'clock on 5th of October, standing down the river towards the fields of our first labours. It is fifteen miles to the mouth, drab, dreary miles, like the dullest reaches of the lower Thames, but scenery was of no concern to us, and a southwesterly breeze, blowing out of a grey sky, kept us constantly on the verge of reefing. The tide, as it gathered strength, swept us down with a force attested by the speed with which the boys came in sight, nodded above us, and passed, each boiling in its eddy of dirty foam. I scarcely noticed at first, so calm was the water, and so regular were the boys, like milestones along a road, that the northern line of coast was rapidly receding, and that the river was coming to be but a belt of deep water skirting a vast estuary, three, seven, ten miles broad, till it merged in open sea. "'Why, we're at sea!' I suddenly exclaimed. "'After an hour's sailing!' "'Just discovered that?' said Davies, laughing. "'You said it was fifteen miles,' I complained. "'So it is, till we reach this coast at Cuxhaven. "'But I suppose you may say we're at sea. "'Of course that's all sand over there to starboard. "'Look, some of it's showing already.' "'He pointed into the north. "'Looking more attentively, I noticed that outside the line of boys "'patches of the surface heaved and worked.' In one or two places, streaks and circles of white were forming. In the midst of one such circle, a sleek mauve hump had risen, like the back of a sleeping whale. I saw that an old spell was enthralling Davis as his eye travelled away to the black horizon. He scanned it all with a critical eagerness, too, as one who looks for a new meaning in an old friend's face. Something of his zest was communicated to me, and still the shuddering thrill that had seized me. The protecting land was still a comforting neighbour, but our severance with it came quickly. The tide whirled us down, and our straining canvas aiding it, we were soon off Cookshafen, which crouched so low behind its mighty dike that of some of its houses only the chimneys were visible. Then, a mile or so on, the shore sharpened to a point like a claw, where the innocent dyke became a long, low fort, with some great guns peeping over. Then, of a sudden, it ceased, retreating into the far south, in a dim perspective of groins and dunes. We spun out into the open, and leant heavily over the now unobstructed wind. The yacht rose and sank to a little swell, but my first impression was one of wonder at the calmness of the sea for the wind blew fresh and free from horizon to horizon. "'Why, it's all sand there now, and we're under the lee of it,' said Davis, 
with an enthusiastic sweep of his hand over the sea on our left, or port, hand. "'That's our hunting ground.' "'What are we going to do?' I inquired. "'Pick up Sticker's Gat,' was the reply. "'It ought to be near Boy K.' A red boy with a huge K on it soon came into view. Davis peered over to port. "'Just pull up the centreboard, will you?' he remarked abstractedly, adding, "'And hand me up the glasses as you're down there.' "'Oh, never mind the glasses. I've got it now. Come to the main sheet,' was the next remark. He put down with the helm and headed the yacht straight for the troubled and discoloured expanse which covered the submerged sands. A sleeping whale, with the light surf splashing on it, was right in our path. "'Stand by the lead, will you?' said Davis politely. "'I'll manage the sheets. It's a dead beat in. Ready about.' The wind was in our teeth now, and for a crowded half-hour we wormed ourselves forward by ever-shortening tacks into the sinuous recesses of a channel which threaded the shallows westward. I knelt in a tangle of line, and under the hazy impression that something very critical was going on, plied the lead furiously, bumping and splashing myself, and shouting out the depths, which lessened steadily, with a great sense of the importance of my function. Davis never seemed to listen, but tacked on imperturbably, juggling with the tiller, the sheets, and the chart in a way that made one giddy to look at. For all our zeal, we seemed to be making very slow progress. "'It's no use. Tide's too strong. We must chance it,' he said at last. "'Chance what?' I wondered to myself. Our tacks suddenly began to grow longer, and the depths, which I registered, shallower. All went well for some time, though, and we made better progress. Then came a longer reach than usual. Two and a half... Two, one and a half, one, only five feet, I gasped reproachfully. The water was growing thick and frothy. It doesn't matter if we do, said Davis, thinking aloud. There's an eddy here, and it's a pity to waste it. Ready about, back the jib. But it was too late. The yacht answered but faintly to the helm, stopped, and heeled heavily over, wallowing and grinding. Davis had the mainsail down in a twinkling. It half smothered me as I crouched on the lee side among my tangled skeins of line, scared and helpless. I crawled out from the folds and saw him standing by the mast in a reverie. "'It's not much use,' he said, on a falling tide, "'but we'll try kedging off. Pay that warp out while I run out the kedge.' Like lightning he had cast off the dinghy's painter, tumbled the kedge anchor and himself into the dinghy, pulled out fifty yards into the deeper water, and heaved out the anchor. "'Now haul!' he shouted. I hauled, beginning to see what kedging off meant. "'Steady on, don't sweat yourself,' said Davis, jumping aboard again. "'It's coming,' I spluttered triumphantly. "'The warp is, the yacht isn't. You're dragging the anchor home. "'Never mind, she'll lie well here. Let's have lunch.' The yacht was motionless, and the water round her visibly lower. Petulant waves slapped against her sides, but, scattered as my senses were, I realised that there was no vestige of danger. 
Round us the whole face of the waters was changing from moment to moment, whitening in some places, yellowing in others, while breadths of sand began to be exposed. Close on our right the channel we had left began to look like a turbid little river, and I understood why our progress had been so slow when I saw its current racing back to meet the Elbe. Davis was already below, laying out a more than usually elaborate lunch, in high content of mind. "'Lies quiet, doesn't she?' he remarked. "'If you do want to sit down lunch, there's nothing like running aground for it. And anyhow, we're as handy for work here as anywhere else. You'll see.' Like most landsmen, I had a wholesome prejudice against running aground, so that my mentor's turn for breezy paradox was at first rather exasperating. After lunch the large-scale chart of the estuaries was brought down, and we pored over it together, mapping out work for the next few days. There's no need to tire the general reader with its intricacies, nor is there space to reproduce it here for the benefit of the instructed reader. For both classes the general map should be sufficient, taken with a large-scale fragment which gives a fair example of the region in detail. It will be seen that the three broad fairways of the Jade, Weser, and Elbe split up the sands into two main groups. The westernmost of these is symmetrical in outline, an acute-angled triangle, very like a sharp steel-shod pike, if you imagine the peninsula from which it springs to be the wooden haft. The other is a huge congeries of banks, its base resting on the Hanover coast, two of its sides tolerably clean and even, and the third, that facing the northwest, ribboned and lacerated by the fury of the sea, which has eaten out deep cavities and struck hungry tentacles far into the interior. The whole resembles an inverted E, or better still, a rude fork, on whose three deadly prongs the Scharhorn Reef, the Knechtsand, and the Tegeler Flat, as on the no less deadly point of the pike, many a good ship splinters herself in northerly gales. Following this simile, the Hornhorn Bank, where Davis was wrecked, is one of those that lie between the upper and middle prongs. Our business was to explore the pike and the fork and the channels which ramify through them. I use the general word channel, but in fact they differ widely in character, and are called in German by various names, Balje, Gut, Loch, Deep, Rinne. For my purpose I need only divide them into two sorts, those which have water in them at all states of the tide, and those which have not, which dry off, that is, either wholly or partly, at low tide. Davies explained that the latter would take most learning, and were to be our chief concern, because they were the through-roots, the connecting links between the estuaries. You can always detect them on the chart by rows of little Y-shaped strokes denoting booms, that is to say poles or saplings fixed in the sand to mark the passage. The strokes, of course, are only conventional signs, and do not correspond in the least to individual booms, which are far too numerous and complex to be indicated accurately on a chart, even of the largest scale. The same applies to the course of the channels themselves, whose minor meanderings cannot be reproduced. It was on the edge of one of these tidal swatchways that the yacht was now lying. It is called Sticker's Gat, and you cannot miss it if you carry your eye westward along our course from Cookshafen. 
It was, so Davis told me, the last and most intricate stage of the shortcut which the Medusa had taken on that memorable day, a stage he himself had never reached. Discussion ended, we went on deck, Davis arming himself with a notebook, binoculars, and the prismatic compass, whose use, to map the angles of the channels, was at last apparent. This is what I saw when we emerged. End of chapter 11 Read by Gesine in December 2008